0: and a warm welcome to this very special 5x15 event this evening with novelist, feminist, and philanthropist Isabel Allende as we celebrate her epic new novel, Violetta, which is published today in the UK. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. We've had hundreds and hundreds of people signing up, watching live and on the catch up. And we're thrilled to have so many people with us. And I want to say a huge thank you to Bloomsbury Books. It's our honor to be hosting this special event and to be joined by our chair, the journalist and broadcaster, Alex Clark. Signed copies via letter are available now from Newman Books um, and the details will be in the chat. So please do make sure to pick up a copy if you haven't already. I know that Isabel Allende needs very little introduction, suffice to say, she's one of the most widely read authors in the world having sold more than 75 million copies of her books, which have been translated into 42 languages. She won worldwide acclaim in 1982 with the publication of her first novel, The House of Spirits has received 15 honorary doctorates, including from Harvard and in 2014 was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In addition to her work as a writer, she also devotes much of her time to philanthropy and human rights. So please, put your all-important questions in the Q&A box and I know that Alex will come to as many as she can towards the end of this session but for now I will hand over to our chair, the critic, journalist and broadcaster Alex Clark who is also the host of the monthly podcast for Vintage Publishing. We're thrilled to have you with us. Welcome Alex and over to you. Daisy thank you so much and thank you to all of you for joining us. As Daisy said we have
1: had Hundreds of people sign up for this session. that is no surprise to me, but it is always wonderful to know that you want to spend an hour listening to one of the world's greatest writers, Isabel Allende, thank you so much for joining us
2: it's my pleasure and my honor and it's wonderful to talk to you alex
1: i Daisy gave us a really a brief introduction to you there. I mean, an introduction could just fill the entire hour, so I won't reprise it. But suffice to say that The House of the Spirits is 40 (coughs) years ago, its publication this year. 40 years later, your 21st work of fiction. You've also written several works of nonfiction and done a host of things besides. But the books do have a kind of similarity, don't they, in the way that they were inspired and sparked and in the form that they take. Will you tell us a little bit about Violeta?
2: You know, Alex, I had not noticed the similarities until a few people who have read the book because it was just launched today um, have pointed out to me that there are similarities. The fact that my first novel started as a letter from me to my grandfather who was dying in Chile. And in a way the, the, the book is something that the granddaughter writes. We we learn at the end of the House of the Spirits that she's writing this book. And um, Violeta started when my mother died. And it was a sort of spiritual letter to her. And uh, although Violeta is not exactly my mother, she was modeled after my mother. And it also has the, the shape of a letter. And I think that in both cases, it's a, a sort of, Long epic story about a time. It's the time which is fascinating—the
1: 20th century. It's the time that, as you say, it's from 1920 to, to 2020. The book is book-ended literally by two pandemics. It begins with what we became known as the Spanish flu, ends with the coming of the coronavirus. So much happens in between. I was so interested that, as with the House of Spirits, you don't name precisely where it is set, do you? I don't,
2: because it's very convenient for me. (laughs) If I name the place, I have to be very strict with the time, the facts, the dates. And although historically anybody can recognize where it happens, it could be Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, maybe Peru. It's the southern cone cone of, the, of South America. Mm. But the events, the military coups, the dictatorships, repression, the, the effects of the, of, of the Second World War, and all that happened the same way in many places. And if I don't mention Chile, I can move things around a little bit, not much, but enough to give me some
1: literary license. And I guess that's part of the literary license. You were talking there about the inspiration of looking at your mother's life, the, the feeling of this span of time, but it was evidently important to you that you did write a work of fiction rather than a work of memoir. Um, just talk to us a little bit about that, that business of taking facts and historical moments and periods and places, even if unnamed, and turning them into a story. Um, I could have
2: written a memoir about my mother, but I was too close, close to her and close to the time of her death. I usually need more more time to, to internalize and analyze things. Um, And I feel always more comfortable in in fiction than in nonfiction. And uh, the idea of transforming my mother and her life into a novel made it much easier for me to have enough distance and irony to write about that period and about that life. So um, in general, I wish I could write only fiction, but some subjects require nonfiction. And then I'm stuck because I really need to stick to the facts. And I am a great liar and I exaggerate and I change things in life. So when I have to stick to the facts, I really have a hard time.
1: Well, it struck me reading the book. And as you say, it's it's in the form of a letter, a letter that Violetta is writing at the end of her very long life. Um, and it strikes me that there's a sort of fiction within a fiction, because we don't always tell the complete truth in letters do we I mean we're putting a sort of gloss on our lives I was interested in all these different ways of recounting what happens to oneself in a life
2: well Violeta says at the beginning that this long letter will replace all the other letters that she has written him uh, uh, along her long life uh, because she's a letter writing person mm-hmm. she loves the idea of writing to her grandson and uh, She says, throw away everything else and just stick to this version. This is the the purified, clean version of my life. But it's not clean at all because she tells him about her her sex life, about money, about uh, uh, all kinds of stuff that people usually don't write in letters. But I have the precedent that my mother and I wrote to each other every day. And what do you write every day? You really? write about, about yourself a lot. So I, I got to know my mother, every side of my mother, every side of her life intimately. And if you ask me what was my mother doing on the 27th of July of 1987, I go to the box 1987, take it out, look for the date, and I know exactly what she was doing. And that maybe was something confidential that she would not tell anybody but that day that she was furious with my, grand, with my stepfather and wanted to kill him, that day she wrote that to me. And I have it. Just tell me a
1: little bit more about that. Obviously, that was an enormous bond between you two, between mother and daughter. And that continued throughout your life? I mean, how, how did it start? How did the practice first start? It started when I was around
2: 16. Because we were living in Lebanon, and and troubles started in Lebanon, and my stepfather sent the children back to Chile, and he went with my mother to Turkey. They were diplomats. And I started writing to my mother every day, and she would write to me every day. But of course, the letters would take sometimes a month to get from one place to the other. So it was not a conversation. I was not waiting for my mother's letter to respond. Mm -hmm. I was just telling every day. And so did she. So we started that and in our lives, we were separated most of our lives, except a short period that we lived together in Venezuela. And we always, always wrote every day. I started collecting the letters too late, unfortunately. When we were, well, I had collected them before, but they were lost in exile. When I had to leave everything behind, the letters got lost. But then I started collecting them seriously in 1987 when I moved to the United States. And I started putting those letters in boxes every year, the letters that copy of the letters I wrote to her and her letters. So each box contains my mother's life for that year and my life for that year day by day. It's very and interesting.
1: And when you came to, to, to write Violetta, uh, I mean, obviously there are some parallels and similarities, some incidents, but, but as we've said, it's a work of fiction, not a memoir of your mother's life, but did you re-immerse yourself in all those letters? Did you take the boxes out?
2: No, I did not because uh, most of the time that except the first 20 years of my, mother, my mother's life, I was already here in the world. So I was also a witness to many of the events that she witnessed, maybe from a different angle or a different place or a different uh, age, but I was there. So I did not have to research for this book, just research a few things to be sure about certain facts. Uh, But other things just fell on my lap, like gifts from heaven, you know, things that are so unexpected. In a a, a couple of years ago, I married a guy who is, he's from Polish origin, Mm -hmm. but he had an uncle that was in the mafia. And he was the only Polish guy (laughs) in the Italian mafia in Cuba and and Miami in in the times of Batista before the Cuban revolution in the fifties. And that's an unexpected gift. I, what have I to do with the mafia? I know nothing about the mafia, but my husband does. So he gave me all all that chapter, which I think was it, it was really fun to write.
1: Well, you you make the allusion there to some of some of the adventures. That's one adventure that <laughs> Violetta has in her life. She has a lot. Now, as you mentioned at the beginning, the book is you know only just becoming published now in in various languages and places. So not everybody who's who's uh, attending tonight will have read it. We we know that you will. Um, so we don't want to give things away, but I think it's fair to say that Violetta starts her life in a very particular kind of way. She's wealthy. Her family are bourgeois. They're much concerned with appearances and manners. Everything is orderly and it doesn't last for very long, does it? And that sparks a kind of hugely adventuresome life. Of course, you've got to give a, a life over 100 years in a work of fiction. You've got to make a lot of things happen, haven't you? Yeah, um,
2: someone pointed out that how come that she has so many love affairs? Well, in 100 years, you can fit a lot of love affairs, even if they are long. And, uh, <laughs> and so in 100 years, you have a lot of history, things that are happening that sometimes force your life in a certain direction that was unexpected. In her case, because of she belongs to that political class that is conservative, Catholic, uh, patriarchal, um that bourgeois class as you say upper bourgeoisie um she would not be interested in in the poor or in social um disadvantaged people or none of that it was not not in her realm until she loses everything and she ends up living with with the 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 people in the south of the country where she where she's in touch with indigenous people with poor people with farmers with and and then her idea of the world shifts completely and she becomes a different person
1: i noticed that you used the word of yourself of your own life exile uh, a few minutes ago and that's what violetta and her family call their own having to go and live in this very very far flung place very remote community rural community with basically no amenities no luxuries whatsoever and it is in many ways the kind of making of her and in a way of the family and i wonder what part you think exile stepping away from your life and having to remake a life is important and and how much it happened to you because you moved around a lot in your life didn't you i i
2: did i have been always displaced for my life. I I was born in Peru. My father abandoned the family when I was three. My mother returned to Chile to live in her parents' house. So I grew up my first few years in Chile. Then my my mother married a diplomat. We started traveling. Then I went into exile and then I became an immigrant in the United States. I'm always a foreigner. I go back to Chile and I'm still there a foreigner because the country has changed and so have I and the world has changed. But your question about how important exile is, I don't wish exile to anybody, anybody. You don't want to be a refugee. You don't want to lose everything you have and be forced out of of the place that is familiar to you, where you feel safe. And you leave because you feel unsafe and because any other thing is safer than staying. And before we understand that, there is no compassion for refugees because we think that people just get out because they they want a better life. Those are immigrants, but refugees is very different. So I don't wish exile for anybody and that family calls themselves in exile because really they're in exile from their social class.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes,
2: But yeah, yeah, they had to leave everything behind as I did, but for different reasons. And they go to a place that in appearance is like, like terrible, it's exile. And they are welcome, they are, they are giving a family, they are giving love, they, they learn a lot. So the, the world exile in that case is ironic because it, it's not exile really, it's the way they call it and they don't dare say it aloud. They only call it like that among themselves, never in front of other people because they know that it's, a, it's, it's not fair. That's not exile really. But on the other hand, talking, talking about exile, I don't think I would be a writer today. And I would not be talking to you today, Alex, without the experience of exile. Because The House of the Spirits, my first novel, is an exercise in nostalgia. It's trying to get back everything I lost. And I don't think I would have written that book or any other book if I had stayed in Chile. I would be now a retired journalist and probably a very happy one.
1: Isabel, tell us a little bit more about that, because The House of the Spirits wasn't published, you know, at the beginning of your adult life. You had, as as you mentioned, you had other lives. You had other jobs, other work, other experiences. Had you always been planning to write a novel? Did it come upon you suddenly? What was that transition period like?
2: You know, I never thought I would be a writer. It was the time of the boom of Latin American literature from the 60s to the 80s, and they were all men. There was not one female voice in the whole boom for 20 years, not because women were not writing in Latin America, but because they had been systematically ignored and, and dismissed. Um, fem- books written by women were lesser than books written by men, no matter who wrote them. and. Um, Critics would not pay any attention to them. The distribution was lousy. Publishers would make small editions. Nobody paid any attention. Of course, they were not even studied in universities or, or high schools. They were not part of the optional reading in a high school. And um, that has changed completely now. But when I published The House of the Spirits, they said I was the only female voice in the, in the boom. Then they said, no, she's not from the boom, she's post boom. But in any case, it was rare that a book by a woman would have the success and and the world acclaim that that book had. I was very, very lucky because that not only paved the way for my following books, but for other writers as well, other women writers. And today there are as many women writers of fiction in Latin America as men or maybe more. And they are extraordinary. There is a wave of young women who are taking this the literary world by assault.
1: I wonder what it felt like to be part of that boom. And I'm I'm talking as somebody who was obviously, you know, totally outside of it. And you suddenly saw these writers being published, great. Um, ceremony and great fanfare and something new magical realism was something new and we were reading in the UK for many of us things that kinds of writers and writing that we were completely unfamiliar with and of course it had that feeling of something really exotic the names the places what was being described I wonder how it felt to be in the middle of it to to be seeing it from the inside that idea of the boom in Latin American writing.
2: Well, it was a choir of very diverse voices from different countries, but it was an harmonious choir that sort of presented Latin America in different voices and aspects to the world, but also to us, to Latin Americans, because before the boom, writers were writing in their countries of origin and published there and maybe famous in their own countries, but it, it was not exported or distributed all over the continent until the publishing houses in Barcelona picked up these wonderful writers and books and published them in Spain and sent them back to Latin America so that we could all read them. So I belong to the first generation of Latin American writers who grew up reading these great men from the the boom. And I say men, because as I said before, they were all masculine voices all tenors and baritones, no sopranos in there. And um, so, so for us, it was a revelation. I remember that reading them, I had for the first time the idea that I belonged in a conglomerate that was all different, but we all belonged in that, in that place. It wasn't Chile like an island in the middle of nowhere. There was Colombia and, and there was Venezuela and, and Peru and, and Argentina, the wonderful writers from Argentina and Mexico. So that that created a sense of belonging that for me was important. I don't know if other people of my generation felt the same way, but I, but I did. I was a very avid reader, so I read
1: them all. I mean, there, there's, of course, the fact that there was so much uh, in South America and Latin America happening politically. And this is such an important part of Violetta. We will, I know, come back to Violetta's love affairs uh, and the (laughs) idea that they they simply gather pace as she gets older. And there's a great, energetic, fun part of the book. But there is also a kind of political awakening through the novel. She's not terribly interested at the beginning of it. She is actually very, very good, Violetta, at making money. She's very good at business. She's very good at love. She's not very interested in politics, is she? And then that gradually changes.
2: That that changes when politics affect her life. Mm. When she's hit hit personally, then she gets involved. And that's typical of that social class. And at that time, uh, later, I think that many young people at university uh, were sort of awakened into politics. Even if they did not belong to the working class, they they would get involved out of idealism. But it was not the case in 1920 when Violeta was born and let alone in that remote place where she's living. But as her life, as she finds herself confronted with repression and and she feels it in her own family and in herself then she gets involved the same way when she sees it's very this i i came to realize this after i had read the book that violeta puts up with a lot of domestic violence Mm -hmm. and she doesn't see it until she sees it in somebody else and then when she sees other women suffering she said why the heck is she?" she puts up with this and then she said oh well I did I put up with it too Mm. so it's the same in politics she She, is uh, she doesn't see it until she sees in others
1: there's a wonderful line in the book that I I jotted down because it's it's about the fact of progressive politics uh in the country where the book is set and it comes quite sort of late on and the writer says Violetta says we were in the wrong hemisphere and ahead of our time which is why we paid dearly for it and I found that such an interesting you know just encapsulation in one line of the book of a way of thinking about South American politics that there was this move towards progression this move towards socialism but somehow it wasn't accepted and the repression that followed it was dreadful, well, is enumerated in the book.
2: Mostly it wasn't accepted because the CIA intervened in every country. It was the time of the Cold War and the United States would have never allowed another Cuba in the continent. They would not allow any leftist movement to even exist. So they trained the, the military and they armed the military as, uh, as mercenaries of the upper classes. And they um, and defenders of American interests in Latin America, because there were economic interests and politic, geopolitical interests as well. So, in, in conjunction with those with the conservatives in every country, the CIA managed to topple democratic governments and install horribly repression dictatorships. In some countries, uh, they they. Somehow protected the military who committed genocides in in Guatemala. They killed two hundred thousand people, indigenous people. Six hundred and twenty villages were disappeared from the globe. They they burned people alive. I mean, the kind of stuff they did was horrendous, mm-hmm. and that created collapsed governments, corrupt governments, a state of of violence especially in countries like Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, where the intervention was brutal. And now these people are running away from from violence, from the gangs, from the narcos, from corrupt governments, from poverty, lack of opportunities, and coming to ask for asylum in the United States. And the United States does not see the responsibility it has on the situation those people are running away from. So, and that, that's the period I, I witnessed and I lived during my time, which is also Violeta's time.
1: Yes, and it's very, it's very powerfully um, detailed in the book. I just wonder, just staying with, with, um, with the political situation, obviously, it's beyond the book. Um, how do you feel when you look at Chile now and look at the fact that you have a new president, the youngest? President, I think you've ever had a a socialist. Does it feel like a different time is coming?
2: Well, I I wish Violeta would have lived a little longer (laughs) and she would have, (laughs) what would she think of the new government? I think she would be delighted. She would not have been delighted as a young woman because she she was not aware of anything, but today she would because that generation would be her grandson's generation. Mm And it's, it's, in, in Chile, something really interesting started happening in October of, of 2019, when suddenly they raised the fee of the, of the subway for four cents. It was nothing. It was just nothing. But first, the students, and in 24 hours, a million people in the streets, protesting against everything, furious. And, and there were no leaders, there was no political party, there was no idea why they were protesting, why they were so furious, for four cents? No, they were furious for decades of a social system, social economic system that created incredible inequality because Chile, in the, in, according to every statistic, is a country that has done well economically with an extreme neoliberal ec- economic system. But the distribution of the the wealth was so unequal that it created a huge middle class that lives on credit and disguised poverty of people who live marginalized from the state. They have little businesses that are always like under the table. So in this state of of anger, the pandemic hit and, and everything sort of stalled. But one thing was clear that we needed a new constitution because the constitution we had was imposed by the dictatorship in 1980. It was amended afterwards by democratic governments, but it was still the same basic structure. This, and, and then people said, no, this is not the country we want. And they asked, what country do we want? Which is a question that no country is asking right now. And then they said, what would be the norms, the rules for this new country to happen? We need this new constitution. And then we had a presidential election. And this young man, Gabriel Boric, represents a a coalition of parties of the center and the left, including the Communist Party, which in Chile is very well organized by tiny. And the ultra-right represented, well, the conservatives represented by an ultra-right man called caste uh, confronted um, Gabriel Boric in the election and Gabriel Boric won by a large majority. He comes to the presidency three days ago or four days ago, we saw the picture of of the new ministers. And it was compared to another picture of the ministers of the the President Elwin. And they were all men, all dressed in black, all sitting in straight chairs like this, And it was like like the Supreme Court of some medieval place. And now the photograph of Boric and his people, they are all dressed like hippies, they have beards, they have masks, and they are jumping and, and, and they are happy. And I think the country is happy with them. And we are all praying that they will not confront a horrible opposition and that they will be able to do what they want because this is the country we want. A country that is inclusive, that has diversity, that it, that has equality and justice for everybody. A country in which there is gender parity, same number of women and men in every position of power. The ministers are 14 women and 10 men, and they are all young. So this is a new generation that is saying we want climate to t- take care of the climate. We want to take care of nature. We want the Aboriginals people to be in to be included with us, our our Indians and our gays and our immigrants, everybody's
1: included. So I think it's fantastic. That idea of gender parity. I mean, this is, again, something that you've you've written about so much in the book, the rights of women uh, over time, the fact that they didn't have property rights, that they didn't have custody rights that they weren't able to start their own business. They, they couldn't vote. They couldn't um, in, in not only Violetta's character, but other characters in the book, you show how this gradually is confronted and changes. And I was really interested in the way that you did that and you made it part of sexual independence and financial independence. You kind of married these two things together. And I wonder if you could just explain a little bit about that.
2: Well, as I said at the beginning, the the difference between Violeta and my mother is that my mother could never support herself Mm -hmm. and she would have been like Violeta because she she also could have made money if she, because she had a vision for that, but she never had anything to start with. She depended first from her father, then from her husband, then another husband, then me. Uh, she, She could never realize her talents either because she was always dismissed. She was very pretty. And that didn't help much because at that time there was the idea that if you were pretty, you were not very smart. Now, now that doesn't happen. But then it did. So no one no, paid much attention to my mother and she was brilliant. Uh, so so
1: in, in, what was the question? I got lost. I, I was just interested that one of the ways that you portray Violetta's power and her resilience, and the fact that she survives all sorts of situations in her life, is by making her sexually independent. She does what no, she but was mostly economically, and financially, and economically, and and the two seem to go hand in hand for her. And I was very interested by that.
2: Yeah, I think they they not necessarily go hand in hand, but but most of the time it does, because um, Violeta. Is always capable of supporting herself. Even she she supports her husband at the beginning and then later the lover. So she she's always she owns her own life and she can always leave, which is great. Now, because she's so passionate and so romantic, it takes her a while to leave Julian, whom I would have killed long
1: before. (laughs) But (laughs) he's not a good man, although he's he's a very attractive man.
2: He's very attractive. He's very seductive. He's the the the, the devil lover, for sure, uh, which I'm always attracted to. Also, unfortunately, but <laughs> you know the good men that you should marry are never as attractive as the as the threatening one, <laughs> and that's the case with Violeta until she's old, and then in her old age she finds some balance in her life in her emotional life
1: yes she does have the most extraordinary romantic life there's a wonderful bit and I I promise this isn't really a spoiler for our audience and I'm just going to repeat to them we've got lots of questions coming in do put your questions in the Q&A box and I'm going to start to ask um, Isabel some of your questions soon Um, there's a, a brilliant bit right at the end when she 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 remembers her first husband, and she actually thinks, "God, I completely forgot I was ever married to him." He's so sort of, you know, his really love loud. life has been so rich, and he has yeah. been the first. She's completely forgotten about him. I mean, it's quite something. Your uh, your portrayal not only in Violetta's life, but the importance of love not necessarily marriage, of sexual and romantic freedom between the genders in the, within the same gender. I mean, it's very much at the forefront of the book, isn't it?
2: Yeah, because it has been so in my own life and some of my own experiences I gave to Violeta. I was married at the beginning of my life. She's only married three or four years, three years, I think. I was married 29 years to the father of my children, a very good man a really good, good man that I just stopped loving because I had, we had no common interests is the truth. And exile didn't help either. And then I was married to the devil lover for 28 years. The kind of guy that is um, fascinating in many ways. I even wrote a book, a fiction, it's a fictional recount of his life. Uh, I should have left him long before. And I was completely hooked by my romantic idea of him and my my being in love of love which is has been my problem always and then when we i finally separated from him i was 74 years old and everybody said but are you going to divorce at 74 are you crazy why and i said well because it takes a lot of courage to stay in a relationship that is not working okay. it like takes way less courage to leave and so we separated. And I promise that in a few months, I couldn't remember anything. I, I look at pictures of, of Willie now, and it's always a surprise of how handsome he was, because I had forgotten. And then I try to remember why I did not love him at the end, or why he didn't love me, or why what why were we in therapy for so long? I can't remember. I should call the, that therapist I don't know where he is now and ask him what the heck did we talk about because I don't remember (laughs) at all so I understand that Violeta would not remember her husband
1: well there is this kind of idea that of course goes through the book it goes through the idea of reprising a a century-long life that you can be completely different people People. within it that you can regenerate there's a wonderful part um you know towards the end of the book again no details of it but it is to do with that idea of becoming politically active politically engaged not just knowledgeable but actively taking part in it that there's a great thrust of the book which is about how much your life can come into a sense of power at a point where other people feel that you should just be aging and retiring and that's something I know you feel very strongly about don't you
2: well, because that has been my case, that, that I, in every stage of my life, I have had to reinvent myself and start from scratch a few times, sometimes in, even in different countries, in different languages. So for me, um, I'm not afraid of risk and I'm not afraid of change because I know that I can go through that. I have already done it and not only survive, but thrive. In, because I am challenged. Uh, so in, in the last stage of my life, which I don't think is the last, I, I will be 80 this year. The latest,
1: think... we should call it, the latest, <laughs>
2: not the last. So I will be 80, but but I don't think this is the end of my life. Uh, I think that I have more years of being productive and being in love and being engaged in the world and running my foundation. And then I will be ancient and that will be another stage. And I will find other things then. As long as I have a brain, I'll be fine. So I think that that's how Violeta feels. Unfortunately for her, she lives lucid until the very end like my mother did. Hmm. My mother's body didn't work at all. She needed help even to go to the bathroom. But her mind was always sharp, ironic, curious. I asked her right before she died, I said, she asked me, she said, am I dying? And I said, yes, mom, are you afraid? And she said, no, I'm content and curious. Mm -hmm. And, And that curiosity, she had it to the very end of her life. I wish I can keep my curiosity for the world as well.
1: Well, I guess writing is uh, is one way to do that writing among many of the other things that you do, as I mentioned, I was going to take some questions from the audience and I'm going to start with one um, from Lucy Guthrie, who says, what do you think in Violetta is the most reminiscent of your other books? Um, so what about the novel would, would most feel linked to your other books? I mean, we've mentioned, of course, the structure of The House of the Spirits, but but is there, do they feel linked? Does it feel linked to your other books in some way?
2: You know, there are several elements that are repeated in my books. And even if I don't try that on purpose, it, it just happens. And because those are my obsessions, those are my demons, the things I care for. So there is always violence and death and love, and loyalty, organic justice, absent fathers, strong women, that that is repeated. And another element that is always there is memory. Uh, People try to remember. And uh, in the House of the Spirits, the idea is to recover the history of the family and the country through the notebooks that the grandmother wrote. And they are being read by the granddaughter. In this book, it's, remembering her own life to tell it to someone she loves very much and um Can you hear that? That's the fog horn in in the Bay Area in California. And that's a fog horn because there's a lot of fog today. (laughs) Sorry about the noise, (laughs) but that I can't stop it.
1: (laughs) No, we love the atmosphere. Uh, We we like to have the atmosphere. Um, Thank you very much. Um, Nadia and Sonia Daniels-Muller, my sister and I are watching, they're 17 and 21. We've grown up reading your books, starting with The City of Beasts, read by our mother aloud when we were little. Ah, Isn't that lovely? What kind of of stories, they ask, inspired you when you were young as your stories continue to inspire us? Thank you so much, Nadia and Sonia. You know, nobody ever
2: told me stories when I was growing up, but I was a, a very good reader from age five on. I learned to read really fast. I was the only girl in the house. I had brothers and uncles and, and grandfather, but uh, and at the time in the forties, nobody did anything special for kids. Kids were just an addendum to the family, and um, I read whatever I could get my hands on. I had an uncle who had a huge library, and he kept adding to the library. And when he he taught me to read, and he would buy books for me, and he bought although I was very young to read them, books like Jack London, like Oscar Wilde, Dickens, the, the great classics of, of young adult literature that I read when I was really a child and loved it. So that, that's the kind of book I grew up with. And probably it, they had a huge influence in my um, in my taste for reading. I like to read when, books in which things happen, not, not, not necessarily adventure, but I want action, even if it's an internal emotional action, things happen. And I like books in which the outer world is included because I think that the social and political events of, and the time in which one is living and the place where one one is living, determines a lot about our own lives and the lives of the characters. That's why I can't read romance novels because everything happens in a sort of bubble in which there is no external world. The the world is the emotions and passions and relationships of the characters. And that's that. And when the outer world is there, it's only because of the clothes are from 1700, But, but not because there is any awareness of the impact of the world in our lives and that I think I learned very early on in my readings.
1: I have to ask you this um, Isabel and I have to really prove to myself, find out for myself whether it's something that is just you know on the internet and isn't true at all but is it true that you once had a job translating the novels of Barbara Cartland or is it just a story? <laughs> Well, it's
2: partly a story. I did translate romance novels when I was young. And I did change the the dialogue and the ending a little bit because I wanted the heroine to look a little better, not so stupid. <laughs> but <laughs> so I was, of course, I was fired very, very soon. <laughs> I was fired. But you know what? When when people say, are you worried about my books are translated to 42 languages, are you worried about the translation, how can I worry. I mean I I change the endings, some other translator can change my books that's fine, they are probably improving them.
1: Thank you. Well, I I can't help but think translating romance novels must have had some, even if it had the opposite effect on your writing, you decided it was what you didn't want to write. So another question from Lucy here uh, that I'm really interested to put to you. How do you think Violetta, among your other books, will be perceived by different generations? Because, of course, all generations are included in this book, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, how they will be perceived you know I learned recently that uh, because th- th- someone was making a study about it that most of my readers are between 22 and 55 years old mostly in their 20s so I have no idea why they read me and what do they find there because I, I am not a modern writer in the sense that I'm not writing about technology about science fiction, about so many things that interest young people and you can see that in the internet And you can see in the social media that they are interested in in things that I don't write about most of the time. So I don't know.
1: But Jack London probably didn't think you were reading his books, I suppose, or wouldn't have thought that. So books can go on a long journey, I guess. Yeah, they
2: they, they have a strange
1: life of their own. Um, Cassandra Penny asks, has your creative and or writing process undergone a change since the beginning of the pandemic which is an interesting question isn't it
2: yeah i don't know because it's too soon to tell uh, i have written three books during the pandemic uh, uh, the soul of a woman uh, violeta another book that is being translated now and now i started another one but i will not see if anything has changed until much later uh, i think that um, Violeta, except for the fact that it starts in one pandemic and ends in the other, is, was, is not a book that is a pandemic book at all. It's just, I, I thought it was poetic to start it with one pandemic and end it in another one 100 years later. Because if my mother had lived a little longer, she would have died in the other pandemic, in our pandemic today. But I don't think that book is affected by that. I don't know.
1: But in terms of your, I'm just just wondering, there's a, a question from, from Steph here that's sort of related. Uh, she says, do you feel a need to write every day, even if you're not working on a novel? If so, what do you think drives your need to write? Um, and she says she can't wait to read the book. Um, and it's just interesting to know about your sort of daily process and whether in the kind of isolations and lockdowns, that's changed at all.
2: Well, that helped me because Mm. what every writer wants is time, silence, and solitude, because that's hard to get nowadays. And I feel always pulled in different directions. I, every, every day when I open my, my computer, I have a long list of, of emails that I have to answer. 70% of requests of some kind, um, interviews, everything. So all that pulls me away from what I really love, which is creating a story. And the pandemic gave me the time and gave me the the solitude and the silence I needed. And also the fact that I wasn't traveling anywhere because I no book tours, no festivals, no conferences, no public events that helped a lot. Uh, But my usual day starts very early. I get up before six o'clock, around 5.45 more or less. Uh, I have my cup of coffee, shower, full makeup, and then I walk the dogs and then I start working. (laughs) And I don't call it working because I come to this attic with a a feeling of finally I have time to get there and I enjoy every minute of it. I enjoy the research, correcting, editing, creating the story, I just love it. So it's not a work.
1: Thank you. Um, well, this is another sort of question about, about how you create from Sandra Posma, who says, uh, so interested in the way that you merge all these incredible societal elements with your characters and their journeys. Do you outline this before you start writing or does the story oh. form itself beneath your fingers as you write?
2: no i don't plan anything and the few times that i have planned something i can't follow the plan Uh, i i opened the computer on january 8th with the idea of starting a new story and sometimes if it's if it is a historical novel and i have written several of those i have a time a place and an event that i want to explore and most of the time i have done some research before so I have like a platform to, to move my character. But I don't know the story. I don't know who the characters are, who are the protagonists, the sec- secondary characters. Nothing. It, it, all that starts, sort of appears once I get the tone. Once I decide wow. how it's going to be told, who is going to tell it whose voice it's going to be. Is it third person, first person? Is this person talking to somebody else? Once I decide that, things happen. I, the, the story slowly develops and starts to flow. And when the characters do something that I was not expecting at all, I know that I'm on the right track. That's what <laughs> I have to do. Yeah, that's it. And, and it's, it's the adventure of finding out what's going to happen and the flexibility to let it happen. Because when I started writing, not the House of the Spirits, but other books, I uh, I sort of ha- had in my mind something, and I tried to fit the story within that straight jacket. And always I had to let go of that and just, just let the story happen organically. Now I trust that that's the best way, not too much effort, not, not force it too much, just, let it be like a conversation.
1: We've mentioned, of course, we've we've talked about the fact that your mother's life and the fact that you had written to each other every day was was part of the sort of foundation of the imagining of this book. Uh, but I know also the, the person to whom the book is written, the novel is written to Violetta's grandson. And I just wanted to mention that I think that was an inspiration, that character, the character of Camillo. Is inspired by uh, your closest friend to whom the book is dedicated, isn't it?
2: Yeah, he's a Jesuit priest. <laughs> I mean, a feminist, agnostic, and a Jesuit priest. Look at that friendship. <laughs> and he lives he lives in the north of Chile, and we communicate by Zoom, except when I go to Chile and I and I try to see him. But I love that man because he is um, he's always questioning. And, and he's stuck with the Catholic Church. I don't think he should even belong to the Catholic Church, but he's there. And he wants to change everything and change it from, from inside. And, and he works with the poor. He lives in a slum. That's the kind of guy that you want for a novel. I don't have to invent it. He's there.
1: <laughs> and has, he's read, has he read the book?
2: No, no. He doesn't even, well, he he now knows because the, the, somebody told him a few days ago that the book is dedicated to him. But it will be a surprise to find himself in the book.
1: <laughs> um, a, a questioner who doesn't um, give their name asks what you think we should plan to do with our own personal letters. And I'm just gonna link that to another question from Marie uh, who loves all your books and is looking forward to the letter and wonders if you had any advice for her writing the story of her own mother's life as a novel. Her own mother was 91, born in the year of the Irish revolution, nursed through World War II. And she says, keeping the distance is easier in fiction. So it's sort of two questions really, When when you're inspired by something in life, how would you go about putting it into fiction and what do you think we should do with all our letters and personal effects?
2: Well, I think that letters are wonderful and I save, uh, save the letters that I think are important. Now on, on Zoom, they are in the cloud somewhere, They're, I mean on email. Um, don't show anybody the love letters because you will be so embarrassed. You don't want anybody to save <laughs> your love letters. <laughs> that is horrible. I, I wish I had never written a love letter because then years later, when you don't even like the, the person, uh, the horrible things, the tacky, sentimental, horrible things you wrote, you don't want that. <laughs> and regarding how you're going to tell the story, it depends because it, one thing, I, if you want to write a memoir, it's maybe easier in, in, the, in the case of, of your mother that you know so well, but I think that in a memoir, you have to have a theme, a reason why you write the memoir. For example, if I have, let's say, if, if my daughter died, my, my daughter Paula died, the reason to, die, to, to write that book And the thread that links every story in the book is the death, the premature death of this young woman. Mm. Uh, So the same, if if in in the life of your mother, there is someone, a reason for for which you want to write the story, you think it's unique and it's important, keep that in mind so that you don't get lost in the details because books, memoirs and fiction and nonfiction and everything, has highlights and lowlights. And you, you want to, that's what you want to write about, about tragedy and drama and comedy and, and the great losses and the great successes. That's, those are the highlights and the lowlights. And all the grays in between in our lives are not interesting to anybody. Not to the person who lived it, let alone other people. So forget all that. Nobody's interested in the grays in between. And, and to keep that in mind when we are very close to the person we are writing about is hard because everything is a highlight for us. But if you keep in mind, what is the thread in that life? What is the constant thing, theme in, the, in that life? It's easier to eliminate and choose.
1: Isabel, that is just, we're we're nearly out of time. That is just such a a wonderful moment to conclude on. The idea, nobody is interested in the greys in between now. (laughs) There really, really is comedy and tragedy and love and sex and and war and everything in Violetta. (laughs) I'm going to have to ask you as a final question before we ask Daisy back, where are you going next? What are you doing next?
2: Well, I finished another book that is being translated right now. And I want my American editor to read it because um, it's a very American story and she cannot read it in Spanish. So I'm waiting for that. And in the meantime, on January 8th, I started a new book, but I am doing the publicity for Violeta. So I'm on Zoom day and night. And I have not had time to (laughs) dedicate to the other book,
1: but it will
2: happen. I I have a whole year in front of me.
1: We are very, very grateful to you for thank you. doing thank you, an hour Aris. of Zoom. Um, Daisy, I think you're going to come back and, and say good evening to everyone. Thank you, thank you very much to 5 by 15 and thank you for having us.
0: Isabel and Alex, thank you both so much. What an extraordinary, rich discussion. We touched on so many topics from curiosity to aging, to displacement and exile, letter writing and translating, romance fiction. We absolutely love being with you for that hour. It was very, very special and a real honor for us on the launch day of Violetta to be able to host you. So um, the book is published uh, today in the UK by Bloomsbury Books and Newham Bookshop have got signed copies available. I hope that everybody will pick A copy thank you for all of your excellent questions I'm sorry we couldn't come to all of them but there will be a podcast and recording coming soon and I hope that you will share it and um, for now it is good night from us thank you Alex thank you Isabel and we will see you again very soon